Good morning! Today is Sunday, the first day of October 2017. He worked on an invention that could and did change the world, but before he had a chance to show what he had done, he disappeared without a trace forever. Today we have the story of the man who possibly made the first film on the 136th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Come on in, pour a cup, and relax for a while. So after my last show, I heard from a couple of listeners. Regina, a longtime listener and friend, let me know that last week's show about leaded gasoline, among other things, hit close to home because she lives in New Baltimore, Ohio which sits inside what is known as the Ferndale Feed Materials Production Center. This plant released millions of pounds of uranium dust into the atmosphere, causing major radioactivity contamination of surrounding areas. She knows two people who were on the cleanup team and told her it was devastating. Tons and tons of material had to be trucked out by trains and then sent to the desert to be buried deep underneath the surface. And billions of dollars in equipment they used to decontaminate were cut up and buried on the site. Thanks, Regina. And that almost sounds like it could be another story for Coffee with Jeff, but not for a long while. I can only do one Mankind is Poisoning the Planet story a year, or I get too depressed. Then I received a letter from a listener named David. For the subject of his email, he wrote, You said to email. That I did, David. That I did. Anyway, David told me about himself, what he reads and what he watches on TV, and his connection to Aleister Crowley. Thanks so much for your email, David. You can email me anytime. You know, I don't have any way to measure the amount of listeners I have. So the only way I can tell if I'm doing a decent job as a storyteller is from you letting me know. So if you want to make me smile, email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Or you can use my Coffee with Jeff Facebook page or Twitter if you'd like. Anyway, it's finally feeling like fall here in Chicago. I've got a yard covered with leaves. So before I take care of that, I want to tell you a story of an artist and inventor named Louis Le Prince, who mysteriously disappeared. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. A camera captures traffic along a bridge, a man playing the accordion, and a family gathering in a garden. By today's standards, these scenes would be tossed on the cutting room floor, but over 125 years ago, when they were first captured, they were revolutionary. 
and odds are you've never heard of the man behind the camera. In the English city of Leeds, he's an icon, Louis Le Prince. The story goes like this. Edward Maybridge was trying to photograph a horse with all four of its feet in the air at the same time, and in the process discovered the secret of making pictures move. Soon after, photographer W.K.L. Dixon, working for Thomas Edison, invented a motion picture camera called the Kinograph and a peephole viewer called the Kinescope. Just how much of this work was Edison's and how much was Dixon's? We don't really know, but Edison went down in history as the inventor of the motion picture. French inventors Auguste and Louis Luminaire improved on Edison's work, creating the theater experience, and finally, George Millais began using film for storytelling and invented special effects. And then there was Star Wars. But there was another man who was rarely mentioned when discussing the early days of cinema, and it's the French inventor Louis Le Prince, a tall, distinguished-looking man with a mustache and lamb-chopped sideburns. He was a kind and gentle person, and was an artist and a perfectionist, and he just might have been the true inventor of the motion picture. He rarely gets credit, though, because in 1890 he disappeared, never to be seen again, before he could show the world what he had done. He was born louis Amy Augustine Le Prince on the 28th of August, 1841, in Metz, France. His son Adolf would later write, My father, Louis Le Prince, the inventor of the moving picture, was born in Metz on October 28, 1841. His father, a major in the 7th Artillery, gave his two sons an education that was both scientific and military. His father had a friend, photography pioneer Louis Daguerre, who gave Le Prince photography lessons. As a young man, he studied painting in Paris and chemistry at Leipzig University. For a while, he found work as a photographer and a painter. He was a born artist who took up oil painting and pastel portraits and also specialized in the painting and firing of art pottery. In 1866, Le Prince was working in Leeds for a friend he knew from college named John Whitley for a company called the Whitley Partners. It was then he met and fell in love with his boss's sister Elizabeth, known as Lizzie, who was also a talented artist. The two were married, and from the letters that survived between the two, it appeared that it was an extremely loving relationship all through their days together. In 1870, when the Franco-Prussian War broke out, Le Prince accidentally got himself in the middle of an uprising in Paris. He was arrested as a suspected spy. He was released through the efforts of his wife Lizzie and the Paris press. He did end up joining the fight and served as an officer of volunteers. In 1871, after the war, the couple opened their own School of Applied Arts, the Leeds Technical School of Art. It was there he became an expert in the tinting of photographic images and fixing color images to metal and pottery. At one point, they were commissioned to make portraits of Queen Victoria and the long-serving Prime Minister William Gladstone. It was around this time that Edward Maybridge was hired to prove that all four feet of a horse came off the ground at the same time while running by the former governor of California, Leland Stanford. That's the type of thing you can do when you have lots of money. He did this by setting up a series of cameras in a row. Each one would take an image of the animal as it passed by. He discovered that if he flipped through the photographs, it would give the illusion of a horse in motion. 
And for further information on this, listen to Coffee with Jeff, episode 15. When Maybridge's photographs were published, Le Prince became fascinated and began to get the idea of producing a series of photographs like Maybridge's, but from a single camera lens, rather than a series of cameras. What he had in mind, basically, is what we now know of as the movie camera. The Le Prince family moved to the United States to investigate something called the Lincrusta-Walton process for the Whitley Partners. When he got to New York, he found that the patent rights had already been sold to an American company, but the Le Prince family decided to stay in the U.S. He became the manager for a small group of French artists who produced large panoramas, usually of famous battles, that were exhibited in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. While he was doing this, he was also working on his experiments with moving photography. Meanwhile, Elizabeth was teaching art at the Institute for the Deaf in Washington Heights, New York, New York. The principal of the school was Isaac Lewis Pete, who Louis became friends with. He was permitted to use the school's well-equipped workshop for his experiments. A mechanic named Joseph Banks began assisting Le Prince in his work. The first camera they produced had 16 lenses. You can find pictures of it on the internet. It was basically a wooden box with four rows of four lenses with two more lenses on top as viewfinders. This was the first thing that Le Prince ever patented. But the problem with using 16 lenses is that each image was taking a photograph from a slightly different angle. So even though it sort of did capture motion, it was jumpy and hard to watch. Also, the paper used to photograph the images on would rip and tear when he attempted to play it back. Being the perfectionist he was, the prince knew he could do better. The family eventually moved back to England, to Leeds, in 1877, and that's where he built a single-lens camera. And in 1888, he put it to use. He shot what is now known as the Round Hay Garden scene. This film, or what exists of it, is about 20 frames and lasts less than 3 seconds. It is believed to be the oldest surviving film in existence, as noted by the Guinness World Book of Records. Some believe that Prince may have made films before this, but if he did, none survived. And it's also not known if what did survive, the 20 frames, was the whole thing, or if there was originally more to it. According to Le Prince's son Adolf, the film was made at the home of Joseph and Sarah Whitley in Roundhay, Leeds, England on the 14th of October, 1888. It featured Adolf Le Prince, Sarah Whitley, Joseph Whitley, and Annie Hartley in a garden walking around. For some reason, the women seemed to be walking backwards. It's on YouTube and I'll have a link to it on today's show notes. It was shot on Eastman Kodak paper-based photographic film using Le Prince's single-lens combination camera projector at around 12 frames per second. Now, it should be noted that Sarah Whitley, Joseph's wife, died only days after this film was shot. And this is actually important because her death was on the 24th day of October 1888, as it says on her tomb. And since we know the day of her death, and we know that she was in the film, the date of the film cannot be disputed. And this proves that Le Prince made this film before any other, and that includes Thomas Edison. His next film, made shortly after, 
was taken from a window at the southeast corner of Leeds Bridge looking down at the bridge. It is known as traffic crossing Leeds Bridge. Again, it was under three seconds, but it did capture real motion of horse-drawn wagons and people crossing the bridge. Today, the building in which the film was taken has a plaque that reads, Louis Ami Augustine Le Prince came to Leeds in 1866, where he experimented in cinematography. In 1888, he patented a one-lens camera with which he filmed Leeds Bridge from this British Waterways building. These were probably the world's first successful moving pictures. His last film was called Accordion Player, and it's just that, a man, actually his son Adolf, playing an accordion in front of stairs leading up to a building. But all that survives is just a few frames. Now the only thing left for Le Prince to do was to have a public screening of his films. And then he would go down in history as the man who invented moving pictures. So Le Prince planned a trip. First to the UK to patent his new one-lens camera, and then on to the US to promote it. After spending a little time with family and friends at his home, he took a train to visit his brother in Dijon, France on the 13th of September, 1890. Apparently his mother had died and Louis was due a large inheritance. And then on the 16th of September, he was supposed to be on the Dijon-Paris Express on his way back to Paris. He was going to meet some friends, pick up his equipment, then catch a ship to Liverpool to sail to America. He never showed up in Paris. A search of the train found no trace of Le Prince or his luggage, and no one on the train remembered seeing a six-foot-four man with lamb chop sideburns. In fact, some say the only man who saw him board the train in Dijon was his brother. The French police, Scotland Yard, and his family undertook exhaustive searches, but to this day, whatever happened to Louis Le Prince and his luggage is still unknown. There have been many theories to what might have happened to Louis Le Prince. One theory was suicide. It was rumored that his obsession to create moving pictures caused him to go into great debt. The prince's brother's grandson told historian George Pantanier that Le Prince wanted to commit suicide because he was on the verge of bankruptcy and planned this whole thing out to make sure his body and belongings would never be found. However, Pantanier noted that Le Prince's businesses were profitable and that he was proud of his inventions and thus had no reason to commit suicide. His great-great-granddaughter, Lori Schneider, said... Louis was very excited about showing his new invention off at Jamal Mansion in New York. This is supported by his letters to Lizzie in our family archives. He was also promised his share of a sizable inheritance by Albert, his purpose for going to Dijon. He was also a devoted family man. Suicide? Not likely. My thoughts is that if you were working so hard to create a world-changing invention... No matter how much in debt you were, you would want to play it out. Show what you created or what was all that debt for. Now, maybe if he showed it and it failed, well, then I can understand. But no, suicide, I don't think so. The next theory was murder. The theory goes that Tama Elva Edison the great inventor, known as the Wizard of Menlo Park, ordered his assassination to prevent him from filing his patent 
because Edison was working on his own film system. This is what his wife Lizzie and their son Adolf thought to be the case until their dying days. In fact, when in 1901 at the age of 19, Adolf was found dead, shot while duck hunting, just added to Lizzie's suspicion. Adolf had been fighting Edison's copyright claim on the film camera, and to Lizzie, this confirmed what she already had thought. Now, again, in my opinion, Thomas Edison was, well, a ruthless businessman. He wasn't above taking credit for other people's work, using lawyers and such to get rid of competition, and playing with the facts like changing dates to get what he wanted. But to hire an assassin? I would highly doubt it. And also, there's never been any evidence that hints that Edison was a murderer. There's also the idea of fratricide, that his brother Adolf murdered Louis Le Prince. The theory goes that he was owed a thousand pounds from his mother's death. Somehow the two began arguing over the money, and in a moment of anger, one brother killed the other. This might explain why no one saw Louis get on the train in Dijon, that this was just a story his brother made to cover up the crime. Again, his great-great-granddaughter, Lori Schneider, said, They had a very loving, warm relationship. Lizzie speaks in her memoirs of the close relationship that the family had. There seems to be no reason why Albert would want to kill him. I mean, Albert was a very successful architect in his own right in Dijon and didn't need the money. And Lori points out that she has a letter from Lizzie that it wasn't just Albert at the train station to see Louis off, but the whole family was there. There was also the idea that his family had him killed because he was gay. This is pretty ridiculous since the family spent a long time and a lot of money trying to find him. So if the basic four theories of what happened to Louis Le Prince are wrong, what really happened? Before I get into that, I just want to say that most of these quotes by Laurie Schneider came from the film called The First Film about Louis Le Prince that came out in 2015. I got the others from a forum from unexplainedmysteries.com in which she just identifies herself as his great-great-granddaughter, so I'm assuming it's the same person. This next quote comes from the roundhayfriends.com site in which she gives her own theory. I've read this theory in other places, but I think Lori summed it up very well. <clears throat> My family has several theories. Some believe that Edison had something to do with it. Others believe that he engineered his own disappearance. My personal theory is pretty mundane. Since Louis took a later train, the Wilsons, who were to meet him in Paris went ahead and left for England when Louis didn't... Since Louis took a later train, the Wilsons, who were, the, who were to meet him in Paris, went ahead and left for England when Louis didn't disembark when they expected him to. According to Lizzie's memoirs, the train Louis took would have, would have arrived in Paris at about 2,300 hours. Being so late... He probably, he probably hailed a handsome cab to take him to his workshop. I think the driver, taking advantage of the hour and the darkness, took him to a remote location near the Seine, hit him over the head, and threw him in the Seine. 
There were two articles from the time that suggest that thieves were targeting lone travelers and Le Prince was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I simply can't believe that a man who loved his family as much as he did, as evidenced by the letters, would either commit suicide or disappear on his own. In 2003, a photograph of a drowning victim from 1890 resembling Le Prince was discovered in the Paris police archives. No other information is available about this man, so no one really knows if it was him or not. But if so, it supports Laurie's theory. Now, as far as the patent claim, Lizzie and the family had a problem. Since there was no body, they couldn't prove that Le Prince was dead, therefore the patent didn't transfer over to them. They had to wait seven years before he was officially declared deceased. Now, an interesting story about Edison and his camera that came a few years later. The man who basically invented the movie camera for Edison, William Kennedy Dixon, was fired by Edison when Edison learned that Kennedy was helping to develop a film camera for somebody else. He, with a few partners, formed the American Mutoscope Company in New Jersey in December of 1895. In 1898, Edison and his band of lawyers sued them for copyright infringement, accusing the company of stealing his work. The court originally ruled in favor of Edison, but eventually, in 1902, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that Edison did not invent the motion picture camera and cited Le Prince's camera as one of the examples. Lizzie Le Prince spent her following decades in America trying to prove Lewis's claim to be the inventor of cinema. She seemed to have never got over her husband's disappearance, and that was even compounded when Adolf was found dead. She died on November 4, 1925 in Tennessee. Bryony Dixon, a silent film historian at the British Film Institute, isn't buying that conspiracy, but says Le Prince did show a cinematic guy that was way ahead of his competitors. He understands instinctively to take on the Leeds Bridge film a high point to look down at lots of different people moving, and, and this is what excites people about early film. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go, um, when I was about 75% done with today's story of Louis Le Prince, I found that there was a documentary film by a fellow named David Nicholson Williamson about Le Prince called The First Film. Apparently, Williamson had a lifelong obsession with Le Prince, and I debated whether I should watch it or not before I finished my story. I decided to go ahead and watch it and use it as a source. But the film was more of a documentary of Williamson's quest to find out as much information as he could about Le Prince, prove that Le Prince made the first film, and that he made his first film in Leeds. Personally, I would have preferred a more straightforward documentary about Prince. I mean, who was the first doesn't seem all that important to me. The man's story is what I was hoping to see, to learn a little more about who the man was. In fact, a man being interviewed in the film brings up that very point, about just how unimportant it is to worry about who was first. You see, it's amazing that so many people seem to be working on the, the, the same goal of bringing motion to pictures 
at the same time in history, many independent from one another, and they were only sometimes months apart in accomplishing their goal. And much of it is how you actually define a film, what makes a film. And that being said, many arguments can be made about who was the first, depending on how you look at it. Now, to the people doing the work, it was important to them because being the first means you get the patent, which means you get all the money. Another interesting point that was brought up in the film was that of Mark Rance, who was a film historian. And I think Le Prince's great-great-granddaughter brought this up as well. All people want to do is talk about Le Prince's mysterious death. And, and in a way, that takes away from the man and his amazing accomplishments. He was a lot more than just a guy who mysteriously disappeared. Now, in the film, there's a little end bit, which is very silly, in which they attempt to recreate the Round Hay Garden sequence at the actual place it happened. They have an exact replica of the single-lens camera the prince used, and they think they found the exact site the film was made. The problem is the site's not the backyard of a country estate anymore, but a parking lot or a street in front of some apartments. So you have four people walking around trying to imitate two and a half seconds of film. Granted, if the location still looked the same, it might have been cool, but in the film it just comes off as silly. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We at SciCon could use your money. It takes dollars to keep these shows going. Please consider becoming a patron of SciCon by going to our Patreon page. Just go to SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? Hey, Gordon's Gun Closet is back. In the latest episode, he talks about pirate guns, which sort of goes along with the last episode of The History Files, which was all about pirates. You can find this and other shows at SciCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com if you want to complain or just say hi, feel free. I'll answer your emails. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, and believe me, I understand that, go over to iTunes and leave some stars or, or a review or something. Those really help in the iTunes ratings of my podcast. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You folks have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks. 
Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with